the chicken or the egg. What? The paradox. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer appears to be both. At exactly the same time. Hello and welcome. My name is Craig Mazin, and this is the third and final episode of the official Watchmen podcast. I'm here, as always, with Damon Lindelof, the executive producer and writer of Watchmen. And today, at long last, you, like us, know everything. And I should warn you, if you don't know everything, if you haven't seen every episode of Watchmen yet... Please turn this off. Especially the 10th episode. <laughs> you, you need to see the 10th episode. There's no 10th episode, but there are nine incredible episodes. Make sure you've watched all of them. And I think also, if you haven't listened to the first two episodes of this podcast, definitely worth a listen to before we get to this one. We are going to be unpacking everything. We are going to be analyzing everything. We're going to be talking about the big finish. Now, I can just jump to the end if you want. I could just go right to the end and start saying, okay, does this mean this? Does this mean this? But I'm not going to do that. I I will eventually get to those. But I like to unwrap these gifts slowly. Our three episodes that we're covering here, episodes seven, eight, and nine, are entitled An Almost Religious Awe, A God Walks Into A Bar, and the final episode, See How They Fly. The series managed to throw dozens and dozens and dozens of balls into the air. And not only did they all land beautifully, but everything turned out to be intentional. Everything had purpose. Everything added up. And that is um, beautiful. It's a beautiful thing when the equation balances out. And, you know, I asked you the last time we spoke, what was your sense of how things are going? What's your sense of how things went? How do you feel about what you've accomplished now that it's done? Well, I'm immensely proud of the show. I've I've talked a lot about, and I apologize for my stammering because I'm still processing. And the experience of making the show overlapped with the period of the show starting to air. We were finaling this effect shots and working on the sound and the music all the way up until basically Thanksgiving. So I've had maybe nine or 10 days as of uh, the conversation that we're having right now to be finished with it. And so I'm still processing. So I'm immensely proud of the show on a, on a subatomic level. What all writers want is to communicate this thing inside of us that we can't quite verbalize. We can only verbalize it through our storytelling. And so you don't kind of know what that is when you first start, you feel that, that, that glimmer or twinkle of inspiration of, I have something to say. And then basically spent two years of my life figuring out what that wanted to be. And then as that effort became more collaborative, the show stopped feeling like mine. It started feeling like ours. The second most important thing, if not the most important thing, was that when these nine episodes were all said and done, whether people love them or hate them, that the general consensus would be, this guy really loves Watchmen. And his intentionality was clear that he wanted the show to earn the name Watchmen. It had to be Watchmen. 
for people who have had a 30-year relationship with Watchmen like I have or came to it later, people who have a a pre-existing relationship with this who may have watched the show with their arms crossed from the jump, which is how I would have been watching it had I not been making it. If their arms gradually sort of unfolded, I don't need them to be clapping at the end, but if they made it to the end of episode nine and they're sort of like, okay, this thing can call itself Watchmen, that was the brass ring. And I don't know right now whether or not that's going to be the mass consensus or what the mass consensus even is anymore in the pop culture. But I am sort of feeling right now at this moment in time, like this thing is in conversation with the original Watchmen. You can call it a sequel. You can call it an homage, but it's not a cover band. Like it tapped into that same kind of energy that launched the original. It's its own thing. But that's the thing that I wanted most under my Christmas tree. Well, you are allowed to be proud. And it strikes me that you saw something as a kid in Watchmen that you really admired, that you loved, and one day you decided, I think I'm going to go create some life of my own. Hmm. (laughs) And you did. I want to get into our first episode here, uh, An Almost Religious Awe. And we're going to talk about theme a lot here because as I arrived at the end of this show, I kept finding these loops of themes that were going through and recurring over and over. And here we see the millennium clock. We're not quite sure what it's going to do yet that is ticking down to an event. You talk a little bit about how you guys thought of time as an element in a show called Watchmen. I think that Anybody who's ever been in a writer's room and engaged in that collaborative process, you spend hours and hours and hours and hours talking about theme and ideas, and you interrogate why you're doing this. You talk about things that are interesting to you, et cetera. And then it comes time where the buzzer goes off and you just have to write the story. But hopefully the audience can feel all the conversations that you had. I've talked about this with you before, which is we made this sort of recipe list of adjectives that we would use to describe the original Watchmen and also plot ideas, thematic and visual ideas like the smiley face, et cetera. But we also knew that we had to sort of invent our own. So it's like we did a smiley face in the pilot, but then we were like, we have to start to find our our own motif. So maybe that's going to be an egg. And the reason that it's going to be an egg is going to set up something that we're doing in the finale. So it all comes together. But It's screenwriting 101 that you need to have a ticking clock. And if you try to avoid it in the third act of a movie, if you're doing any kind of, particularly this genre, right, superhero genre or sci-fi, it's like you always want to avoid it. And so it kind of felt like one of the narrative propulsive necessities of this show was setting up in the pilot that the 7th Cavalry had a plan and that their plan was going to come to fruition in the endgame of the series. And that was going to be one of the things that was just sort of powering things through. And on the heels of that revelation was the idea of, God, we don't want to do that. You know, like, is there a way to sort of subvert that idea? The cavalry is going to have a plan, but what if someone has already figured out a way to decimate their plan? What if the cavalry's plan is secondary to someone else's plan? And then per the clock idea... I think that the idea is like, it's not Watchmen if you aren't constantly referring to clocks. And so that is going to be a motif. And how can we make a clock an emotional idea for many of the characters and kind of went from there? Well, in general, I think one of the things you guys do so well is consider what is expected and then lean into it only because you're using it as a misdirection. It's a a really useful technique, but only when it's well done. As we have progressed through this series, it's not like we have detached from what I think is the main theme, which is race. Mm. 
And there is a moment in this story where we're getting Angela's story. And Angela Abar, um, there is this not well-known comic called Abar Black Superman. It's, it's a it's actually a black exploitation film. Oh, it's a film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, I thought uh, it was a comic. No, uh, not uh, not a, if there should be a comic of it. Well, there might a, be now. Yeah, exactly. And so that was intentional. Yes, this is one of the hidden little bits here, and that is mirrored by something that happens. In this episode, we see young Angela. She's a little girl. She is living in Saigon with her parents. The war has concluded. America has won because of Dr. Manhattan's intervention. And she is trying to rent a movie. <laughs> I told you she was going to try. That you did. Please, let me see it. What did we tell you last week and the week before that? I have to wait till I'm grown up. And she has picked out the one movie... That is a black exploitation movie that stars a woman named Sister Knight. That's the character's name. Yep. And why does she want it? Because it looks like me. Right. Not just because it is a masked hero, not because it's a black person, not because it's a woman, but because it is a black woman. Yeah. um, I think that from the jump, one of the things that the original Watchmen did that we wanted to do as well... Watchmen was trolling superheroes while at the same time revering them. Both things sort of like coexisted. But a lot has happened since the late 80s. And now superheroes are the predominant cultural idea in the year 2019. And at the same time, and I say this without judgment or condemnation because I love all of the Marvel movies and even a number of the DC ones. But we can all agree that empirically there are just not a lot of superheroes of color. Even a movie like Black Panther, for example, Black Panther covers his entire body in his in his Black Panther costume, as does you know Don Cheadle or War Machine, and so this uh, we're not seeing a lot of blackness. And this is something that I was relatively blind to because as a white person, you move through the world and you say everybody looks like me. You know, even Wonder Woman looks looks like me to some degree. And again, what happens in the writers' room is a a sacred thing, and b conversations are all built on the foundations of other conversations. So for me to ever say like, this was my idea or this was so-and-so's idea, all those ideas spring from conversations that are happening in the room. And I can't speak more highly of, of this room. But in this case, I remember it was Stacy Osaikafor, who was one of the co-writers of the seventh episode and was there from the very early days in Watchmen. And it was Stacy who said, it is a very important for Angela at some point in this season of television to say, because we had decided on this idea of the inspiration for Sister Night was this black exploitation film. Stacy actually wrote the lyrics and performed the, the lyrics for the Sister Night That's awesome. theme song. Um, for anyone who's interested, the lyrics are are on PDpedia because Dale Petey did a deep dive on on the history and provenance of, of that particular film. She was the one who said, it's really important for Angela to say, she looks like me. And that's different than I look like her. And so this idea of if you are told as a child that if you want to grow up to be a superhero, you you have to look like Bruce Wayne or Clark Kent or Hal Jordan or Tony Stark, and that's all that's available to you, it's going to limit your ambition. And so in the spirit of everything that we were saying about blackness as it relates to hooded justice her grandfather being the first superhero but he had to hide right. his race even the first original right. superhero belongs to white america because he has to present himself as white to them which means all these black kids are looking at hooded justice and thinking well i can't be like him correct and now on the front of this video box sort of a cheesy b movie she sees 
the nun with the motherfucking gun with a huge afro proudly demonstrating her blackness. And she is basically like, sign me up for some of that. And so there has been a cultural shift into the early 80s. But the conversation and the connection to where Angela comes from, that story doesn't start until Will arrives in our pilot. And this issue of what it means to be a cop in a mask has been seeded from the very beginning. But right now, here in episode seven, there is a real problem with cops and masks. Specifically, Lori Blake, who's been listening in to Angela's memories, goes to visit Judd Crawford's wife, Jane, played by the amazing Frances Fisher. Incredible. And I also have to say about Frances is she is like the sweetest, nicest, (laughs) kindest of person. Well, you know, she believes in the best in humanity. She is not in this show. She's the opposite of Jane Crawford. Not to not to ruin the illusion. In this show, it turns out that Judd Crawford was Seventh Cavalry. He was Cyclops. And so is she, maybe even more so than he was. And there's an understanding of, of why they had to be that way. It comes out. We now know at this point that Cal is Dr. Manhattan. Their friendship with Angela and Cal was entirely about getting close to Angela and Cal because they believed that Cal was Dr. Manhattan. Right. Also, just a plot question. Way back in the first episode, there's a police operation against the 7th Cavalry involving Judd Crawford, who kind of almost risks his life to defeat them and save Angela and so on and so forth. Was that all intentional misdirection by Judd Crawford? Yes. This is something that we talked a lot about, which is bad guys have plans. And in many cases, oftentimes the bad guy, we want to hide the bad guy plan from the audience. And in this case, the the 7th Cavalry's plan is is they are amassing these these old-school lithium batteries, and they're also stealing batteries from Lady True's worksite in order to build this cage to eventually entrap and transfer Dr. Manhattan's energy into Joe Keen. Crazy bad guy plan. And had to reverse engineer all that stuff to, okay, there's a guy with a lettuce truck, and when he gets pulled over by a cop, there's these Lady True batteries in the back of his van. And this cop has now made this guy as a member of the 7th Cavalry and this guy, who knows what he knows? Does he know that Keene is running the 7th Cavalry? Does he know that Crawford is in the 7th Cavalry? Does he know why he's stealing the batteries? These are all questions that we had to ask ourselves as writers. But this guy basically changes the bad guy plan when he shoots the cop. Right. So we're seeing an aberration. And so now Judd Crawford is basically spinning. He's like, crap, the original bad guy plan was this guy was never going to get pulled over. We were going to finish making our cage. We were going to go trap Dr. Manhattan and do our thing, and the rest is history. Now I've got to improvise. What he wasn't counting on was Angela beating a confession out of this dude that they pull into the pod who says there's a 7th Cavalry cell that's basically at this cattle ranch. So Judd knows the only way through this is to take these guys out, and what he's doing is he's making sure that no one survives. That's why he's torching the getaway plane, because presumably the guys on this plane could potentially expose him and or their plan. That all Does makes, that make sense? It makes total sense. Thank God. Absolute sense. And it's obviously strengthened by the fact that we already knew that there was a clan uniform in his closet, which now I think we can say for sure he was keeping there because he liked it. The plot that Senator Keene has hatched here with the help of the Crawfords, the original plot was 
to create a threat, a masked threat to cops that is manifested in the white night when these people kill police so that the police would need to be in masks. And now everyone's in a mask. This would lead to Senator Keene becoming president. Obviously, once the Dr. Manhattan element comes into play, his ambitions grow, as as Jane points out, into something that's far more interesting. Right. But can you talk me through how the connection, the clear connection between, okay, if we can get everybody in masks, I'll end up being president. Keene's ambition is creating some kind of culture war. And the thinking behind that is... For Watchmen to be culturally relevant in 2019, it has to be some sort of funhouse mirror reflection of the time that we're living in. (laughs) There's really fascinating sort of conversation erupted around the show as we were airing kind of the first three or four episodes, which was this idea of like, this show is too political. Like, and also, and all, and also parallel to that, how can this show call itself Watchmen? And so the, the idea of like, well, Political was on that very short list of of adjectives. And so the show is political, but my own personal politics, and I make no bones about the fact that I'm a liberal, I'm very progressively minded. But at the same time, I think that the original Watchmen is, is kind of anarchist in its blood and it has to troll the extremes. So you have to troll extreme liberalism and extreme progressivism. I happen to think that reparations are a really good idea, whether they're reparations for slavery or reparations for something like the Tulsa massacre are a really good idea. I also have to accept that were reparations actually enacted, that there would be a virulent pushback from a large sector of our society. And do I take sides? Well, again, my side is I I think that we have a big white supremacy problem in the United States of America. I'm not here saying there's good people on both sides. That being said, I'm just presenting what I think would actually happen were reparations to be passed. And so the 7th Cavalry starts to exist independent of Joe Keene. Joe Keene doesn't start the 7th Cavalry. So he's the junior senator from Oklahoma, and he sees that This reparations legislation was passed. Now the 7th Cavalry is starting to exist. And he starts to see, okay, well, this right-wing terror organization of white supremacists, there's a little bit of overlap in our Venn diagram of beliefs. My father, Joaquin Sr., was a member of Cyclops. And there's this feeling of, like, we've had to hide our faces. And now the 7th Cavalry is out there making a point of this. At the same time, he's pro-police, Joaquin. So it's sort of like I identify with both the bad, crazy racists and masks, but also the cops. So in a perfect world, I'll be able to control both Both of these. And the best way for me to control both of them is to put them all in masks so you can't tell the difference between them anymore. And you can start overlapping them literally. You know, look, I'm the first to say that this logic makes your head spin a little bit. And as Keen is revealing his bad guy plan, which is a a trope of the genre, but also a trope of Watchmen, which is in the final issue of of Watchmen, uh, Ozymandias is basically talking the entire time. But Keen Keen even says something to the effect of like, you know, I'll, I'll admit it's, you know, like it's a little harebrained or like... But then something ex- but then something really something exciting really happens. Something really exciting yeah. happens. And that's the notion that Dr. Manhattan, as it turns out, is not living on Mars, nor is he living on Europa. He's living right here in Tulsa. Before we get to that, Angela, theoretically, is remembering a lot of her own memories, like her own childhood, because she's getting this treatment to flush out Will Reeves' memories from her system. She took all that nostalgia 
And the way you're getting that flushed out is by a hose that goes into your arm and it's connected in theory to Will Reeves. And there's an explanation, a scientific explanation that I, I could not follow. But here's what I could follow. I could follow the hose all the way to that room, which she pops open. It's called neurodialysis. Of you, course it is. Just, just Google it. Just Google it. <laughs> and in that room, she discovers she is not connected to her, her grandfather, Will Rees. She is connected to a sleeping elephant. Damon Lindelof, <laughs> WTF. <laughs> what was the deal with the elephant? Um, well... Let's do a little behind the curtain because I wish that I could sit here and say every single plot point in Watchmen was meticulously crafted from the jump and then we just executed that plan and everything went according to plan. But creating a season of television is like any heist movie. So there's things that go wrong. And so I would say that largely the plan that we constructed for the season went off without a hitch, although on an episode-to-episode basis there was always problem-solving. Episode seven was the hardest episode to break because coming out of episode six, we have to focus on Angela and what was the emotional impact, the seismic revelation of understanding who Will was and what it means for her to now understand who she is. And so we decided to construct this very on the nose, literal storyline around this idea of his memories are very painful. They're still inside of you, and we're going to flush them out. And so very naturally, that led to a conversation of like, so where are the memories going once they're out of Angela? How do we visualize the idea of this flushing process? Do we put her in a chair like in Total Recall, and she's got these electrodes hipped up to her, and there's a, a TV monitor above her head, and we're literally seeing the clips from episode six, as they're, and, she's, and she's vibrating in the chair, and this is, no, we're not doing that. And we also understood that it was now time to understand Angela's origin story, and was there a way to sort of show this idea of history repeating itself, this idea of nothing ever ends, the circularity of superhero origin stories are about orphans, and Angela also right. lost her parents, and what's the correlation between the Sister Night Mask and the hood, and the face paint that her grandfather used and and trying to connect all that stuff. And we also knew that episode seven was there's going to be a lot of exposition. You've talked about this idea of non-exposition, exposition before. This is exposition, exposition. Sure, because when you get to this point in a series, right. you don't really have time for non-exposition, exposition. You're running out of runway. You have Correct. to start planning on landing. Right. She is connected to a sleeping elephant. The elephant, why the connection? So sort of like... Okay, there's going to be a tube running out of Angela's arm. It's going to be connected to something. She thinks it's her grandfather. If at the end of episode seven, she goes barging through that door and it's Will, then what? Right. Can't be him. And it can't be a red herring. It can't just be like, there's just a garbage bin there and some goop going into it. Right. There needs to be something in that room. So let's start to kick the tires of what it would be. The idea that I fell in love with, and it's important for me to, to talk about this because uh, believe it or not, Craig, every idea I have is not a great idea. And oh, thank no, I God for that. the other writer. No, I completely believe that. <laughs> thank God for, I was like, what if it's a clone of Angela? So Lady True has just grown another Regina King. And it's a little it, late and, to pull the clone in, I think. Right. Yes. That's what the writer's room said. Not only that, but they were like, we're already doing the clones, clones with Crookshanks. Correct. You know, and sometimes the room pushes back and I and I feel so passionately about something. I'm able to juror number eight them, which is a 12 Angry Men sure. reference, which is you're the one person in the room. But more often than not, they're able to convince me that I'm a complete idiot and we have to find a new idea. And again, 
these are foundational ideas stacked on ideas, but I believe it was Leela Abayok who said it should be an elephant. An elephant never forgets. That's Lady True's symbol. And more importantly, I think that the idea sort of came out that like Lady True wants to store these memories. And so oh, instead of okay. having there be like a hard drive, that elephant not only has Will Reeves origin story in it, but God knows what God else. knows what else. And so it's out there wandering the world, you know, with all these a big old hard drive. Yeah, exactly. With that mystery solved, let's play What the Hell is Going On with Adrian Veidt. He's been pulled back from his little moon trip. He was brought back in the last episode to, we'll call it the Game Warden's World. And he is now being put on trial for the crime of trying to leave, along with the crime of killing lots and lots of Phillipses and Crookshankses. Also killing three million people on 11 twos. He's stacked up uh, charges here, but the entire thing honestly feels like a farce. Crookshanks, the prosecutor, even winks at him at one point, like, we're all playing a game here, and it does seem like a game. But at the end of it, Adrian Veidt does something I never thought I would see Adrian Veidt do. He sheds a tear. And I'm just curious, is he sad there because he is feeling guilty about what he has done, or sorry for himself, or is it because he knows that he's going to have to leave them soon? This is going to be the most frustratingly pretentious answer ever, but it's it's all of the above and also none of the above. And I think that what I'll say is, in episode eight, he does demonstrate to John in Cal's form probably the most real emotional moment that he demonstrates in the course of these nine episodes, which is that he saved the world and nobody even knows it. And the beautiful utopia that he had envisioned has not come to pass. And is he ever going to see it? And then Manhattan says to him, you will see it, but but not here. Um, I can send you to a place where you'll see it. And so the question that that was really fascinating to me was not just the plot question of what do you do for an encore when you've saved the world, but if you really save the world, things wouldn't turn out the way that you wanted to. It's sort of like any negotiation where you walk away from the table with some of the things that you wanted. But he basically realizes that saving the world is a temporary thing. And so he's raining down these baby squids just to kind of keep the status quo. But he's now at a point in life where he's like, I'm going to die. And I've now acknowledged I lose to humanity. Humanity is too inherently fucked up and self-destructive for me to ever save the world permanently. And more importantly, they've rejected my utopia. And there's real resentment there. Why, oh, why must they, they continue to build their godforsaken bombs? And so when he's crying and when he's both plaintive with Manhattan in that moment but when he's crying in the trial which is going to happen six years later right. in in real time or however time moves on <laughs> on europa it's all relative that said what he's crying about is this isn't utopia either you know he's in a waiting period now this trial is just basically he's killing time it's life magazine yeah. in purgatory while he's waiting for lady true's ship to come and pick him up right. he's literally written all this dialogue so the reason that crookshanks winks at him is cuz he wrote the closing argument it's a play it, just like the play when he of, says i'm writing a play yes. the watchmaker's son is not the play that he was writing the play that he was writing is everything that we've been watching you know to some degree and so he put himself on trial a, to kill time and not go insane, but also maybe if he has all these people yelling guilty at him, he'll feel guilty. He doesn't. Mm. He doesn't feel guilty. So I think Veidt, 
he's asking Manhattan at the end of the original Watchmen, should I feel bad about what I did? Right. You know, was it all worth it? Because I kind of don't. And in my heart of hearts, I feel that Adrian Veidt is probably a bit of a sociopath, certainly a narcissist, and possibly in today's kind of parlance, just like something inside him is broken, emotionally speaking. It's fascinating to me the notion that everything that's really happened there has been coordinated by him, and that part of his sadness here is that it's not working, that he can't make it paradise, nor can he make it exciting. He can do neither, and he is in a terrible kind of purgatory. And that's a great way for us to transition into a really incredible episode of television, God Walks Into a Bar. This is the penultimate episode of Watchmen. I have a question to start with. The way this all begins, and again, it's a loop. Mm -hmm. Dr. Manhattan is, he's a being who has seen the whole series before he's in the series, as it were. He knows what happens and why it must happen. But it begins for us when he is walking through the streets of Saigon and enters a bar and finds this cop named Angela drinking alone. I brought you a beer. You can see I'm a cop. Yes. And I'm telling you to go and you're not going. Did you tell me to go? It was implied. And he kind of hits on her, basically. And he's wearing a, a Dr. Manhattan mask, which is this beautiful little bit of meta fussiness there because people wear Watchmen masks or Dr. Manhattan masks. Yeah, it's VVN Day. It's VVN Day. It's the day that he essentially liberated Vietnam. Right. He essentially says to her, look, you should go out to dinner with me and you're going to go out to dinner with me because I love you and you love me. We are in love and it's happening. It's going to happen and it happened and then it ends tragically. Why? I know why he falls in love with Lori. He's in a team with her. They meet, right? But but why does he fall in love with Angela? Okay, so the question that you're asking now, I would say dominated like probably a full month of conversations in the writer's room and out of the writer's room and via text and in emails. This insane a paradox. For those of you who are not intimately familiar with the original Watchmen, what Craig is talking about is that when Lori in the original Watchmen was 16 years old. She showed up for a meeting for this new supergroup called the Crime Busters. And in that meeting, she met Dr. Manhattan for the first time, who was also invited to be in this group, even though he has godlike abilities. Captain Metropolis, by the way, um, is, is the guy who is, who's running this. And also in attendance are, are Dan Dryberg and Rorschach. And the comedian is also there. But anyway, this doesn't go well. The comedian sort of interrupts this meeting. He burns Captain Metropolis's map and he's like, this is a stupid idea. And so one could ask, why would Dr. Manhattan attend a meeting that he knew would end in failure? Wouldn't Dr. Manhattan know when he attended this meeting that he's going to meet the woman that he's going to spend the next 15 years of his life with? Wouldn't he also know that he's eventually going to tire of this woman? So why do it in the first place? The original Watchmen isn't asking any of those questions. And the paradox that exists with Dr. Manhattan is he knows what's going to happen, but he hasn't experienced the emotionality of it yet. So when Angela says to him, what's the moment where you fell in love with me? He literally doesn't know when what's the moment that he fell in love with her because he hasn't fallen in love with he her hasn't yet. Fallen in love with but if yet. he falls in love with her at any future point, that becomes retroactively retconned. And so in his own estimation, he was always in love with her. So I think that we have to think of Dr. Manhattan in terms of why would he go to Europa to create life in the first place if he knows that ultimately he's going to leave Europa because the life that he created only wanted to worship him? He still has to go through the motions in the same way that 
if you or I were deeply and profoundly in love with someone, and then suddenly down from the heavens, an angel appeared and said, Craig, I have some bad news for you. You're, you're going to be married to this person for 12 years, and then they're going to leave you, or they're going to pass away. Would you then say, I'm breaking up with this person, or would you go right. through the next 12 years? As and, he says, every relationship ends in tragedy sooner right. or later. And so I think that the idea of Dr. Manhattan's passivity, that's part of what makes him this amazing character, which is in the original Watchmen, what if the most powerful man in the world who could literally change it just decides not to? And if you ask Dr. Manhattan, why not just snap your fingers and make all the nukes disappear? Right. Like if Veidt wanted to save the world, why did he try to kill Dr. Manhattan instead of going to Dr. Manhattan and saying, hey, could you just make all the nukes disappear? No one even asks him right. to do it because he would say to them, I'm sorry, I I, I, I didn't. Do I it. didn't do it. Right. <laughs> so you know, and I understand why this occupied so much time for you and your writers because anytime you involve time and the paradox of time and the notion of fatalism, you can get into at least a decent short or medium length conversation about plot points and so forth. What's harder is when you think of something like falling in love because we do believe that there is a moment, a spark, a thing that happens. It's the first moment. I wonder. When Dr. Manhattan, when he walks into that bar, he knows he's going to meet her. He knows he's going to fall in love. But the moment he sees her, does he feel something in that first moment? Does he feel the way that I would feel a jolt if I walked in there and I saw Regina King sitting at a table and I thought to myself, oh, my God, look at her. I'm, my heart's beating. Yeah, he does describe that moment later in the episode when we replay that shot again. And he's saying that I know the moment I first see her, I sense profound emptiness and loss. I know because she says over and over again that she doesn't want a family, yet it is clear through her actions that it is all that she wants. He's describing that moment actually to Will as he's sitting down with the old man. And I think he's relating to her. He knows that he's going to be with this woman, but I think to actually see her and to experience her, to feel her sadness, you kind of have to be in that space. It is the equivalent of telling you, oh my God, you've got to go on this roller coaster. Right. It's going to be exhilarating. And then when you're on the roller coaster, even though you knew it was going to be exhilarating, you have to experience it for yourself. Well, there's this other great theme that we've already touched on, which is the egg. Big fan of the eggs. Um, and there's an egg again here. In fact, that's... Our, the show is very high in cholesterol. It is. The show funded mostly by the Egg Council. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Manhattan even uses an egg as a kind of magic trick proof that he's really Dr. Manhattan. Obviously, he's being a bit cheeky because he could, of course, just teleport them to Mars or something, but he decides to do this kind of old-school sleight-of-hand egg bit. But when we find out the real, I guess, this additional new origin story of how who John Osterman was as a kid, this all does start to really drive home for me. He's on the run. He and his father, they're refugees. They are Jewish, I believe. His dad is, yeah. His father is Jewish, and they are refugees in the 30s. And they arrive in Britain where they are being housed by this very noble British couple. They're an upper-class British couple who have decided, out of the kindness of their hearts, to house refugees. And when we meet these two people, we go, uh -huh. <laughs> So... There's Phillips and there's Crookshanks. Right. At last, the mystery of why those two. Well, here they are. And young John, he's going to, to, to find something for his father and he ends up in a room and hides in a closet because that man and that woman come in and they begin to have sex. 
and then they catch him. Right. So now he's got a thing for closets. Now he has a thing for closets yeah. and British people. Yeah. But by the way, like who doesn't? <laughs> what I loved about the scene that followed was how surprising it was, especially because it's set in the 1930s and you imagine fussy British lords and ladies in a moment like this in Downton Abbey like they they're so lovely with him. And what they tell him is that what he witnessed was a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It was an act of love and that the most lovely act of love is creating life. And this ties all the way back around to the fact that Lady True's daughter is really her mother. And obviously Dr. Manhattan, who at the end of the Watchmen novel said, I think I'm going to go create some of my own life. Right. Now we know why. They literally tell him, make it your purpose to create something beautiful someday. And so he honors them by when he does decide to create life himself. He has not made man and woman in his own image, but in theirs. He has formed a bubble of a European paradise to copy this European paradise that he knew as a child. It seems to me that this is a real departure here in the series from what was happening in the graphic novel. So much of the graphic novel was about wrestling with the inherent meaninglessness of life, figuring out how to derive some sort of moral code and reason to live when the world and all existence is one big joke. And here, what you and the show seem to be saying is, the purpose is to create something beautiful. That's the meaning. That's why we're here. You just articulated it better than than I ever could. And it's over overly simplistic to, to some degree, but I think dead on. I mean, I think that both biologically and spiritually, you know, every religion was was founded on this idea of be fruitful and multiply. And every scientist says survival of the fittest. It is your your biological imperative on this earth to reproduce. That's the one place where the atheists and the devout religious fanatics will agree, which is just have lots of kids. And so very, very simply put, the idea is to is to leave something behind. You know, if there was one secret word in the Watchman writer's room, the Pee Wee Herman, like every time we say it, we return to the idea of legacy. We had to keep coming back to legacy. That's something we inherited from the original 12 issues. And it was the idea that basically justified starting the pilot with the 21 Tulsa massacre, which is this idea of legacy is a thing that we inherit from our bloodline, both what they achieved and what was visited upon them. Their trauma is your trauma. And I think that we look at legacy as white people of this is my legacy. This is a good thing. I have millions of dollars inherited or I get to be a duke or a lady or whatever. If you are a person of color in the United States of America, you're inheriting an entirely different kind of legacy. And this is what the the show wanted to demonstrate both sides of those coins. But legacy as the Lord and the lady, as we scripted them, that's what we we ne- we didn't name them. They're certainly not named Phillips and Crookshanks. Right. That's what they're saying is a slightly more benevolent version of what Lady True is saying to the Clarks when she's extorting them about you have no legacy if you don't have children. And so I've actually created some legacy for you so you can give me your land, which, again, is uh, is colonialism writ large. That said, the legacy that the Lord and the Lady are talking about I think that they're saying to this young boy, when you grow up, create something beautiful, you know, have kids. 
They don't know that he is going to be the world's first Superman. And more importantly, John Osterman, what's so fascinating about him to me as a character is that he is unimaginative. This is something that Veidt later illustrates, which is you lack imagination. And so this idea of like, you're basically saying to someone who's not an artist, create something beautiful. And he's like, uh, I guess I'll just make the two of you. Right. Like, because my dad's kind of a dick. My mom left my dad for a Nazi probably. So I don't have role models. We're talking about the way that Angela, her parents probably would have been great role models had they lived. Then Sister Knight became a de facto role model. Then June would have been a role model for her, but dropped dead two hours after meeting her. Her grandma. So, yeah. yeah. And so essentially for John Osterman, his role models are this lord and lady who took him in and then they become his literal models. Right. So he just creates them. It's not the most inspired idea. If you're going to go off to another planet and create life, think of all the things that you could do. He just basically, he does the thing that most storytellers do, which is we just do the same shit, you know. That we it's did like, before. Yeah, this just copy. You know, yeah, let's just, you know, let's well, just do is, Watchmen again. You it know? is an interesting, as you introduce Dr. Manhattan into the show, you do repeatedly kind of inform us that he's a bit dull and in fact answers a little bit of something that I felt watching Cal up until the moment it was revealed that he's Dr. Cal Hatton. He seemed dull. <laughs> he seemed kind of dull. Like Angela's amazing. Which is amazing because Yahya Abdul-Mateen is like one of the least dull people that I knew. He played and, it great. <laughs> and he had to know that he was Dr. Manhattan because I think that he probably would have brought a lot more right. character and yes. energy to a lot of those scenes. You know, when we shot the pilot, we did, we hadn't told Yahya right. his true identity. And the reason that we didn't tell him is because Cal doesn't know that he's Dr. Manhattan and therefore it didn't feel like it was something Yaya needed to know. But then as we moved, once we got picked up yeah. and we were going to series, I was like, we have to tell Yaya who he really is because even though he's not conscious of it, he still is John Osterman. Right. He doesn't have John Osterman's memories, he but can't do anything, he has his personality. Right, he can't do anything inconsistent with that. And so Correct. what ends up happening is you keep walking up to your actor and saying, you know, that was great. Can you be just like passive and dull right i wouldn't say dull though i would say just unimaginative yes i love the scene in the fourth episode where she comes home and he's reading things fall apart and and she's trying to pick a fight with him and when you watch that scene the second time knowing what you know well that's then then it it becomes much more interesting but that's my point right okay until i knew that he was dr calhattan i thought okay well they're not all winners yes (laughs) once i knew that he was dr calhattan it all made sense and it actually was quite rich and interesting to watch because I now understand why he is the way he is. I also understand why she's with him. And I definitely finally understand that on the white night, there is a seventh cavalry member who's about to shoot Angela in the face. And we don't know how she survived that. Well, we find out how the reason is that this device that Adrian Veidt has built that Angela implants into Dr. Manhattan's head It will prevent him from self-awareness, but it will not prevent him from doing something out of instinct, a kind of instinctive reaction. And apparently in that moment, Cal, without even realizing, teleports that guy away to Gila Flats, the birthplace of Dr. Manhattan, which in and of itself causes a very strange loop to occur. But as this episode ends... I'll come back to this notion of nonlinearity. I don't know why he falls in love with her. 
And I don't necessarily know why she falls in love with him. I don't need to. What I know is that by watching them out of order, I believe it. Once we settled in on the central idea, which was that it was a meet cute, and we would keep coming back to that bar, but as the episode progressed, we'd be away from the bar for longer and longer periods of time, to the point where when you returned to the bar for the final scene, you were like, oh, that's the present. That's where I'm orienting from. But it starts with flashbacks because he's talking about things that preceded the events of the bar. But then he starts telling Angela about things that are going to happen. Right. And then there's a natural touch point where we reconnect back to the end of episode seven, where she has basically removed the ring from his head. Right. And we locked into that idea fairly early because we wanted to create subjectivity from Dr. Manhattan's vantage point, which is the episode is told entirely from Dr. Manhattan's standpoint. Yes. We want the audience to experience time. We want to teach them how Dr. Manhattan experiences time. So he can say, I don't have this idea of now. I don't experience now. I experience Um, all of it all the time. Right. And the only way to do that was to demonstrate it. And so the moment when Angela puts the device in his head immediately cuts to her pulling it out. Because from Manhattan's perspective, everything that happened in between, he he doesn't remember. And so when he wakes up and he's floating there in midair and he comes down and he's just wandering around the kitchen, what's happening is he just got a system update. His iCloud has just said, we are downloading now the last 10 years for you. So at the end of this downloading experience, by the time you're off wandering around on the pool, you will now kind of have some fundamental understanding of what you were experiencing as quote unquote Cal. Um, but that's going to take a minute. And so as he's catching up, a lot of this exposition that you're talking about where Angela says, yeah, you remember how the clock got shot? Yeah, you zapped that guy away. And mm-hmm. then Vite explains he's hopping all around and we're getting the relative r- relative sound bites. But that's not exposition. That's his actual experience. He is multiple places simultaneously. Well, you know, the great producer, Lindsay Duran, once said something to me that I thought was very profound She's and great. very true, which is that the love that is the most meaningful for us when we see it portrayed is love from beyond the grave Mm. that that's the love that breaks our heart when someone is gone or when someone's about to be gone or a memory of someone and maybe that's why as i watched this it was so moving for me because he's talking to an angela that no longer exists because that's an angela that was young and lived in saigon And she's always talking to a Dr. Manhattan that no longer exists because he exists everywhere. It's very beautiful. And of course, it's going to become literally beyond the grave very soon. And now we arrive, long last, the final episode, See How They Fly. And it begins in a very interesting way. Beyond, who we understand to be Lady True's mother, now we find out how Lady True is conceived. Adrian Veidt, for some reason, I guess, perhaps legacy concerns, as one does, keeps a refrigerator of his viled sperm behind a painting of himself. It's a painting of Alexander the Great. Oh, is that Alexander the Great? For all intents and purposes. So imagining himself as that. His hero. And that connects to the passphrase, untie knot. Right. Alexander the Great famously chopped the Gordian knot in half. Right. This episode in particular is going to untie all sorts of knots. And this is the first one. We now see how Lady True is conceived. Isn't it romantic? It is. A person who is pretty resentful and yet also clearly impressed by the nature of Adrian Veidt. 
injects herself with his sperm while saying, fuck you, Adrian Veidt, I believe is what she says. Yes. Perfect. The knot is untied. So she is his daughter. Before we get into what she wants to do, of all the big reveals, the one that really blew my mind was this. Hmm. All this time we've been watching Adrian Veidt, the message on Europa is save me daughter because he knows that she's his daughter. He knows that she has a satellite that watches the moon. And eventually a ship arrives because it takes time to get from Earth to Europa. Right. If you're not teleporting and picks him up. And in order to preserve him for the long flight home, it sprays him with a gold substance and turns him into, oh my God, (laughs) the statue we've been looking at all along, which is not a statue at all. Why did she make the statue look so old, she asks Lady True. And Lady True lies. Well, we venerate old people. No, it's because it's him. The entire time he's been there. Holy shit. How happy were you guys when you thought of that? Um... And I'm not joking at all when I when I say this. Saw two was the inspiration. I'm about to give a big lost spoiler for those of you who not have you know, not seen I'm the show. With, lost with uh, Lee Wan L. He will be so excited. Oh, really? That Saw two is involved here. So Saw two, and I'm also going to spoil Saw two. So there's something that we did at the end of the third season of Lost in the finale where we play with time. That is a twist that was inspired by the movie Saw two, which came out around the time that that we were doing Lost. And I was sort of like, that twist was so good. I think that there's ways to actually mass produce it. And I could I could use it again. And the basis for the Saw 2 twist is, if memory serves, because I've only seen Saw 2 once. You've only seen the thing that has inspired multiple episodes of yes. your own work once. It's basically like, Donnie Wahlberg is a cop. And what has happened is that his son is amongst a bunch of teenagers who have wandered into this house that Jigsaw has set up for them to basically kill them, which is what Jigsaw does. And there's some sort of clicking clock where Donnie Wahlberg is like, I have X amount of time to rescue my son from this house before he is killed. And when he goes and confronts Jigsaw, who is sort of the Hannibal Lecter of the Saw universe, there's like these monitors and we're constantly cutting to these kids who are locked in this house and getting picked off one by one. And essentially, at the end of the story, the big payoff is that Donnie Wahlberg's son gets locked in a box that he will suffocate in. And then you realize that that box has been sitting next to Donnie Wahlberg the entire movie. And his son was quietly dying inside. And that everything that we saw as an intercut had actually happened days earlier. And I was like, oh, God, like, so we'll just do that with Adrian Veidt. (laughs) And so what do we have to do to make this fair is show Adrian Veidt returning to Earth and make a very strong point that Lady True needs to recover him. But you can't show the spaceship. So the whole Clark scene is basically in service of that was the moment where Vite returned to Earth. The big glowing meteor from the sky, that's the ship bringing him back. Correct. And so by the end of that episode, when Blake and Angela get to the vivarium, we see the statue is there. And that's the first time we, the audience, are seeing it. But it's a recent addition to the vivarium. Right. And it's only going to be there for the next four or five days until the Millennium Clock can get up and running. And then she's going to thaw him out. So that he can watch her become Superman because he did, after all, insult her by saying, you're no daughter of mine. Correct. 
And then the final thing was hiding in plain sight was another thing on our watchman list. Mm -hmm. And so we obviously did that with Cal. We did it with Judd Crawford to some degree. We did it with Hooded Justice, with Will Reeves, the idea that he was Hooded Justice. And and meanwhile, American Hero Story is asking who is Hooded Justice. He was hiding in plain sight. Adrian Veidt was also hiding in plain sight since episode four. And so although we're just basically doing a glorified carbonite gag. Well, it all pays off, and it leads up to this episode. And also, um, Jeremy Irons let us yes. encase him in that thing, and he that was actually him in all those scenes, standing absolutely still for Damon, all those episodes. I'll believe a lot. <laughs> I'll believe a lot. You know what? I believe it. It's <laughs> I not, want to believe it. It's not no, true. No, no, it's true now. Yeah. It's canon. It's super true. It's when you say canon, suddenly something becomes true. Yes. Now... I'm going to skip through the big moments of the climax because people have seen it. Lady True, she dies. Now what? And here's the climax for me. This is what I think the climax is, at least. Angela wanders into this theater and there are her children and she and her grandfather have a talk. And in it, we get to this. I think, incredibly satisfying conclusion to the big question at the heart of all this, which is, what's the deal with the masks? What does it mean when we wear these masks? What is it letting out and what is it creating? And there's a hint of it earlier when Adrian Veidt says goodbye to the game warden, who is another Phillips, and reveals that he created the game warden literally to be a challenge for him. And he was not. He was not a worthy opponent. But he put on a hell of a show. But he put on a hell of a show. And the game warden asks before he dies, why the mask? Why did you make me wear a mask? Because masks make men cruel. Well, here's a little bit of a different point of view from Will. He knows why Angela put on a mask. He knows why a lot of people think they put on a mask, even when she felt him put on his mask for the first time as Hooded Justice. It was anger. And that's something that June would say to Will. You have so much anger in you. But what he has figured out after a century of life is that it's not anger. He says it is fear and hurt. And when he says that, Angela breaks down because I think she finally understands just how hurt she has been as a person. That that is why the mask goes on. That's what that is about. And he says, and I just think this is such a wonderful thing to finish a show with. He says, you can't heal under a mask, Angela. Wounds need air. You can't heal under a mask. Wounds need air. I don't think that anyone would have expected that this show, drawn from the source material it's drawn from, would be an airing out of our collective fear and hurt. How would I put it? It's a unique wound that we have as Americans, and it is a wound caused by slavery and every injustice that followed it. And people will put their masks on every day. They used to literally put masks on. They go on the Internet and wear the Internet as a mask to hide this fear and hurting. And it comes out as anger and it does make you powerful and it can make you cruel. But in the end... That's not going to work. What's going to work is air. And I'd like to say, I think this show kind of is that air. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, I, uh, I feel like to some degree I'm about to reduce 
what you said to something less than, but very simply put, there's this thing that drives me nuts in the Harry Potter books, which I adore, which is that Dumbledore, who knows everything and can rescue Harry at any moment and is the most powerful wizard, he makes himself completely and totally scarce until the very end, until Harry has defeated whatever the evil is in that particular. He could have helped. But Dumbledore always says kind of the same thing, repeating and, and very effective emotional idea, which is, I couldn't intervene or else you wouldn't have learned the lesson for yourself. Now that I'm stating the lesson, you know it already, but I'm going to verbalize it for you. And again, I'm reducing to sort of like a plot construct. But I think that when you get to the end of the Harry Potter books, and I'm not spoiling those, but I'm saying the final conversation between Harry and Dumbledore has real emotional energy. Now we're talking not about the most powerful wizard in the world and and the heir apparent, but we're talking about a 105-year-old black man who was a child for one of the worst massacres, basically two generations removed from slavery. And he's almost at the end of his journey. We didn't want him to die. That would have been too obvious. He's going to impart his wisdom. His wisdom can't be, I'm letting go of this. It can't be about forgiveness because we just saw what Keen tried to do. And we've been very explicit from saying, like, the ending of this season is not going to be white supremacy has been defeated. Lady True blew up 36 ranking members of, there, of Cyclops. There are more white people. Plenty yeah. all over the world. But his emotional insight to basically call anger what it is. And again, this is something that I've talked about when I did The Leftovers. I think probably talked about when I did Lost. It is, for me, the fundamental truth of the human experience that I want to try to say in as many different ways as possible, understanding that I'm a white person, but and this is being articulated by a person of color who's been through everything that I just said through Will, is that anger is camouflage for fear or sadness or both. Every instant in my life that I have felt this thing that I call anger was because I was really scared or really afraid. And if you are a person of color in the United States of America, in our world in 2019, or in theirs, there's a lot of things to scare you and even more to make you sad. And to triumph over the mask, to say, I don't want to hide myself anymore, even though this wound was not self-inflicted, it was inflicted upon me. The answer is not to wear a mask. Adrian Veidt, who's a white person who hasn't had any of these things visited upon him, his attitude is going to be masks make men cruel. That's true too. That's why the Klan wears masks. That's why the Seventh Cavalry wears masks. Um, That's why a lot of people who are up to no good wear masks. But what we were trying to get at what the big fundamental thematic idea that is literally stated by Blake explicitly in the fourth episode is that there's causation between trauma, particularly childhood trauma, and and the wearing of a mask. And so now everything that I see rewatching like Batman Begins Again, for example, or the first Iron Man, where you basically go, why does this guy not take off his helmet? Oh, it's because he experienced early childhood trauma. Like, it's been there. And I'm not the first person to talk about it. But it felt like, now let's take that idea and make that trauma about the trauma that was visited upon people of color in America, because that is the American story that's just not really being told enough. And as terrified as I was of telling it and constantly asking myself, am I the person to tell this story and deciding that ultimately I was not and still feeling very much that way, I couldn't 
resist. I had to do it. I was compelled to do it. And thank God so many other people around me were there to prevent me from making catastrophic mistakes and inform me with their wisdom. That line of dialogue, wounds need air, did not come from me. I think it's great that it connected with you. Again, we're two weeks away from it actually airing. So if I don't know how people of color are going to process that line or whether or not they're going to feel like it's authentic. But that scene, more than any other scene in the finale, but we all knew, like, this is the moment that Dorothy now comes behind the curtain. She's going to meet the wizard. And he doesn't want anything from her, although there is a little... He does have yes. an intention. I want the finale to breathe and I want there to be an interpretive aspect to the story and yes. for people to argue and hold it and interpret, etc. in the way that I process the original 12 issues. But I think that I can say that Angela's days of wearing a mask yeah. are over. They are over. Because that was part of our intention too, which is let's do the reverse. Normally the first season ends with, with the character putting, putting, on putting a mask. it on. Right. I am Iron Man. This one, for her, it's basically it like, off. now it means something entirely different for me to spray paint my face, which in the last time that we see her do that is in the fourth episode. Right. She's actually not Sister Knight for the last five episodes of the show. She just becomes herself. Well, Correct. she is, yes. She's always been herself, but... Once she swallows that bottle of pills, she can't return back to being Sister Knight, essentially. Right. She has to be herself. She invites Will to come stay with them, which is nice because she hasn't exactly been a welcoming granddaughter until that point. And I think she is also processing the loss of the loss of her, yeah. of her husband and the love of her life. And then we arrive at the morning, the, the final moment here where before Angela discovers the Dr. Manhattan egg that may or may not contain the powers of Dr. Manhattan. And I don't it doesn't matter to me if they do or don't really. What matters to me is what... I just want to say, yes. someone just screamed aloud in their car. <laughs> Person who just screamed aloud in their car listening to this podcast when Craig said that, I just want you to know, I hear your scream. I want you to drive safely. Yeah, but uh, before that happens, there is a problem posed to her, and it is in very much the way that in the original graphic novel, a problem was posed to Adrian Veidt in the sense of, well, it'll all work out in the end, and... Dr. Manhattan says, nothing ever really ends. There's another problem, by the way, presented at the end end of the original text of Watchmen and almost the epilogue between the publisher of the New Frontiersman and and, the the, the stained shirt guy. Seymour, who has basically found Rorschach's journal on the top of the crank file. And their conversation is something along the lines of, what should I do with this thing? And the final line of dialogue in the original is, I leave it entirely in your hands, which is a line of dialogue that echoes a couple times through our Watchmen. Most recently, I think in the eighth episode, when Angela is asking Cal, once all your memories are gone, how are we going to sort of handle things from there? He says to her, I leave it entirely in your hands. This is once again without literally saying that one last time, because I think that would have been gilding the lily too much. I actually like Will's parting shot much more. Yes, I do too. What Will says to her about the late, great Dr. Manhattan, her lost love, he says he was a good man. But uh, considering what he could do, he could have done more. And that right there is kind of the big God problem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If there is a God and he is all powerful, why the hell is he letting all this crap happen? 
And in it, there is a potentially hubristic question. If I were God, could I do better? Would I do better? Than? Than Dr. Manhattan. Oh, sure. Than God himself. Well, that I don't know. Who knows? And so Angela has this gift left behind by Dr. Manhattan. One final egg for our egg-themed show. She drinks it raw, which is gross. I wish she had cooked it, but I feel like yeah. maybe cooking it might destroy the... Of, of all the dangerous things that we showed on screen <laughs> this season, kids, don't eat raw eggs. Do not eat raw eggs. Salmon, it's salmonella, right? <laughs> it's Salmonella is a huge issue yeah. there. Yeah, don't do it. She drinks the egg, and then she steps on the pool, and before we'll see if she is Dr. Manhattan or not, we end, which is exactly how we should end. It doesn't really matter. The point is not whether or not she is or isn't. The point is, what will she do if she is? That's what kind of fascinates me. So, Damon, are we coming back for season two or what? Um, My instinct right now at this precise moment of time is... I don't know, and probably not. Now the guy is screaming in his car, by the way. Right. These nine episodes, which basically constituted two years of my life, and finally engaging down this road, the thing that needed to happen was I needed to have a satisfying answer for two questions. Question number one was why, and question number two was why now? I don't have satisfying answers to those questions for a second season of Watchmen. The answer to why can't be because the first season worked and you just do more or we're just going to build on the pre-existing themes more. Like, so I don't have an answer for why. And then why now? Uh, the timeliness of what I wanted to say in our 2019 suddenly coalesced with all these other things as we've talked about, you know, that my antenna was receiving, particularly as it relates to the writing of ta Coates and just sort of everything that was happening between the police and people of color and the country and and saying, can you talk about this sort of a thing in a pop culture construct like Watchmen? And if anything could hold it, it could be Watchmen. And I just, I have to do that. I'm not feeling that compulsion right now. And I'll just say one other thing. So I had, um, I had breakfast with Tim Blake Nelson, who plays Looking Glass. The greatest. He's amazing. And if anything, you know, I, I also just want to br- briefly say all of the actors, every single one of them, absolutely and totally extraordinary beyond my wildest dreams and so like that's one of the things that makes me want to come back and do more which is like wow like i want to write more stuff for tim and i want to write more stuff for gene and regina and lou and jeremy and like all of them and you know i would be writing more things for hong had she not been crushed under the weight of her petard although Um, there's probably four lady trues and vials of course yes anyway i was having breakfast with tim And Tim obviously read the finale because he was in it. Sure. And uh, we were talking about, so when are we going to, so when are we going to come back and do more? Because that's the way that it works is there's going to be a second. You just assume there's going to be a second season if the first season was any good or worthwhile or anybody watched it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the way that it works. And I told him what I'm telling you now. And I said, I think that season one ends in a way where the story feels complete. And he said, if you think that the way that the first season ends is not the biggest cliffhanger of all time. You are fucking nuts. Those were his exact words. And it occurred to me for the very first time that people were going to perceive this as a cliffhanger versus 
an ending. Yes. When when I saw Inception and that movie ends with the spinning top, and I remember going to the urinals at the Arclight Sherman Oaks, and there were two guys to the left of me, and one of them was like, that's the best ending of a movie that I've ever seen. And the other guy almost turned and peed on his friend's shoe and was like, he just said, are you crazy? That was the worst ending I've ever seen. It was a ripoff. <laughs> and I was just sitting there peeing, thinking I was agreeing with guy you number one. You were sitting one. and peeing? Standing there peeing. Okay. Standing there peeing. Just checking. Thinking that guy number one is the one that I agreed with, but I loved that I loved that these two friends were having this well, argument in the restaurant. That's what we like. We right. like passion. And listen, whatever you decide to do makes sense to me. But there will be a clamoring for more. I'm clamoring for more. And um, I hope that something happens. I hope something does fall out of the sky and into your lap and makes you think, oh, I know what to do. And the reason I would bet that there is something like that is because I've come to understand your mind a little bit and there's no reason that you would know what it is now. You're not Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> you won't know what it is until you Boy, know what I it ain't is. ain't that the truth. <laughs> you are not Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> I mean, you sit and pee. So I'm, I'm just pretty sure that you are not. On a urinal, no uh, on a, which, which is, is the like, weirdest. You have to, you get your back gets all wet. <sighs> it's, it's just, it's just a, it's and everyone's looking weird. at you. They know what you're doing. It's weird. Well, I can't think of a better way to end what has been the most profound podcast about Watchmen there is, at the very least. The official Watchmen podcast is now complete, although, I don't know, I think maybe we might come back for some fun thing here or there. We do it with Chernobyl every now and again. We might do it for you. Um, It's been my great pleasure. We have been discussing three episodes of Watchmen in this episode. An almost religious awe written by Stacey Osei-Kafour and Claire Kishel, and directed by David Semmel. Next, A God Walks Into A Bar, written by Jeff Jensen and Damon Lindelof, directed by Nicole Cassell. And finally, the finale of the series, episode 109, See How They Fly, written by Nick Cuse and Damon Lindelof, and directed by Fred Toy. This podcast is produced by HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our team from Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Elliot Adler and Barry Finkel are our producers, and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser is our editor. Damon, anyone you want to thank or acknowledge? Everybody who had anything to do with the show. I, I would never stop talking. All the names that you haven't heard, the people who dress the sets, the people who put the makeup on the actors, the craft services people, the tireless camera crew, the lighters, the gaffers. There were 500 individuals who, for at least a year and a half of their lives, completely and totally committed themselves to this thing that they loved. And I think that um, it all showed on screen. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Craig. 